This podcast has been brought to you with the support of Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. With a Wise account, you can send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Whether you're traveling through Asia, freelancing in France, or buying that dream property in Oz, Wise is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. You can even send money home to mum in minutes. Join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account could work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com. Kia ora. I'm Damien Venuto. It's May 11th and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Auckland was hit by torrential rain again this week, stirring up memories of the record-breaking flooding scene in January. Those memories seem to have sparked a fight-or-flight response in Auckland, with the entire city fleeing home at the same time, causing gridlock traffic for hours across the city. Given that scientists are now warning that these weather events are fast becoming the norm, how can we learn to better cope with weather panic? Today, on the front page, clinical psychologist Jackie Maguire joins us to offer her advice on coping with our new norm. Jackie, as an Aucklander, what is your visceral response on Tuesday when the rain started to strike again? Well, I have to admit to you, I'm not an Aucklander anymore. I live in Wellington, but actually I am currently in Auckland and I was here during that rain warning. So I suppose I can't answer that as a native Aucklander anymore. My hunch for those in areas that were significantly impacted in the January floods will be that the sound of rain, the smell of mud, civil emergency warnings on television will have been quite triggering for anybody that was significantly impacted by cycling Gabriel earlier in the year. Trusha Mysuria and his wife bought this home just over three years ago, but it's no longer safe to live in. The water was rushing and here we are again, fifth time since this year. The house was yellow stickered in January, forcing them and their two daughters to find alternative accommodation. This is not what we came for, right? It was hard to get a property, become a homeowner. was everyone's dream, but not like this. For many of us in the Upper North Island, that heavy rainfall has gone from being that regular winter occurrence to sparking fear of these repeat events. So what do you make of that psychological shift that we're currently going through? I think it's important to distinguish between kind of acute distress or, as some people have talked about, for a minority, there will be post-traumatic stress after the start of the year. In terms of when you are facing immediate threat, like yesterday's heavy rain warning, how does your body respond with hypervigilance, with being on edge, with needing to feel like you, your family, your household is in safety? That's quite a different psychological phenomenon, I suppose, compared to more pervasive or prolonged climate anxiety. So when you are not in the face of threat, if you have time to think and dwell and ruminate over the future of the planet, the state of where you live, that long-term anxiety, I think, for people can be very unsettling as well. But they're different things. Do you think that our jumpiness over the weather will pass as we move further away from those anniversary day floods? Or is this the, just the new normal that we're going to have to accept? You know, I, I don't know if I can honestly answer that because when it comes to other types of anxiety, say you've been in a traumatic incident where you're not continually re-triggered or continually re-facing threat, 
then the majority of people with time will lose those symptoms. So they'll be less jumpy and less hypervigilant. It's absolutely what you'd expect generally after four to six weeks. However, with climate anxiety, the worry is justified, isn't it? And so I think this is something that we have to watch and wait in terms of if you are living in a region like Auckland, like Auckland, that is continuing to face heavy weather events and, and threat to your safety, then likelihood is, I would presume, people will continue to be jumpy until they are removed from that threat. At midday, Auckland Council sent out its emergency alert. It was a bit confusing because they told us to leave early and then now they're saying delay travel, so we kind of just want to get home. We were down here at 12 and then we had stood in the line for about 45 minutes and it had moved about five metres. I left work at one and it's now 10 past three and I've still got to get to Tor Bay. Even from my personal perspective, events this week did have an impact on me. So once all those weather alerts and warnings came through on Tuesday, the entire city seemed to be fleeing at the same time to get home. I was among them and I spent two hours in traffic. But then a few hours later, everything calmed down, the streets were completely bare, and some of my colleagues just kind of flew home. So how do we avoid falling into that panic state of mind and reacting rashly like this when these events happen? You know, I think that's a difficult response because you could have a similar analogy for lockdown and, and panic shopping, couldn't you? Yeah. In terms of during that period of time, you were told to not panic by, there will always be supply. I actually think in this instance, it is different because if meteorologists cannot determine how severe the damage will be, I think our first priority always is to keep people physically safe. And if that means that they're trying to get people home or out of regions that are likely to to flood or be impacted, then I think you're in a tricky you're in a tricky tight spot, aren't you? You don't want congestion. You don't want a fifteen minute trip taking two and a half hours, which is a common story I've heard here in Auckland. You don't want people congested, but also we want people to be taking civil emergency warning seriously. Let's talk a little bit about those civil emergency warnings because the sound of those warnings is quite aggressive and alarming and quite triggering for a lot of people right now. And it does put the council and the people who are designed to protect us in quite a difficult position because there is this risk that panic ensues off the back of those warnings. So how do you strike that balance between ensuring that your warnings don't scare people too much? Well, I think you have to ask yourself about what is the point of the warning. Mm-hmm. And if people are in danger, then yep, an alerting noise that grabs your attention that gets you into action is what you want. Even if it's not the most pleasant experience, your aim is to keep people alive. So I suppose the backstory to that is who's making the decisions around if that warning goes out or not. And I think that's where the considered conversations with experts need to happen in terms of really being able to weigh up the risk to safety versus panic versus overwhelming people unnecessarily. But I suppose as a psychologist and as a citizen, if there's any doubt, I think you're better to alarm people but keep people safe than the contrary, which would be... So if we take ourselves back to January, imagine if there wasn't a civil emergency warning or an evacuation for those citizens earlier in the year. We could have been facing down the barrel of a fire, human toll or loss of life. And so... I would say, you know, if there is any doubt, we always need to err on this side of safety. 
I think for a lot of parents like myself, when you do see those alerts too, you immediately think of your children and you're in a rush home to help them. So is there a chance that we could also pass our personal anxieties and worries onto our kids by rushing to pull them out of schools and by panicking around them? I think it's what you emotionally display and pass on to your children. So the act of pulling your kids out of school, I don't think doing that is going to make them anxious. I think it's how you speak to them and and how calm you are around them. So if as a parent you turn up in a high state of panic and anxiety, if you are talking excessively with your children about how worried you are and the threat level to the family, then there's a high likelihood that your children will pick up and probably experience that anxiety themselves. But compare that to a parent that might be internally worried, but turns up saying, We've just been given a message from the council that there might be floods today, so we all just need to go home to make sure we're safe, you know? So we're just going to pick you up or pick your brother up and we're going to go home. And what are we going to do this afternoon to fill in our time? You know, like it could be the same situation, but a very different emotional response that meets that child. And so I think our ability to process our own anxiety with other adults is important. So we can, where possible, try and stay calm and considered with our kids. So it's really about leaning into that rational side rather than letting the emotion take over. Well, I think it's about regulating that emotion. So if you're nervous and worried and scared and overwhelmed, they're all legitimate feelings to have. How helpful are they? I think is the question you need to ask yourself. And being able to name what you're feeling and process that with an appropriate adult, I think it's a far more helpful channel for you and your children than using your kids as your sounding board. If you're finding this episode of The Front Page interesting and informative, be sure to follow us on iHeartRadio or whichever podcast app you're using right now. Every listen helps us keep you up to date with the stories that matter. Do you think that the pandemic has changed our response to these extreme events? I think globally, what I know is that anxiety has risen approximately 27% globally through the pandemic. And so what does that tell me? We've lived through a period of time of uncertainty. And if it's not the pandemic, it's economic instability. If it's not economic instability, it's global conflict. For three years now, we've lived in a world which is not stable. And I think for people, that has put them on edge. And it means, I think for many people, there's a loss of feeling confident of what you know and what you can trust and rely on. So... You know, it's very common that if you're anxious in one area, then anxiety can spread. So given that we do have this new sense of collective anxiety, is there anything that we can do as individuals to ease that burden? Well, I think the flip side to that is we've also seen how we can cope through adversity. So whilst, yes, for some parts of the population, there might be increased anxiety, there's also other areas of communities that have really drawn together and managed to cope well together or people have found inner skills they might not have known they had pre-COVID. We do have an amazing ability as human beings to adapt and survive. And the majority of us, no matter how hard the struggle is, most of us will get through okay. And I think it's really important to remember that. And so I suppose in the space of climate uncertainty and climate change, which is obviously a very real threat, I think it comes down to are you able to take your worry about the planet and what's happening to our environment and use that in a helpful way by 
for yourself or your family goal setting and taking action in a way that's going to help the environment or is that worry paralyzing you and getting in the way of living your life and if it's the former then I think that's okay it's okay to feel anxious anxiety is a normal emotion worry is a normal emotion use it use it to act use it to do in a way that's helpful for the world if it's paralyzing you or getting in the way of interacting with others or doing your job or living your daily life then you might need to think and go well how actually can I start to manage this better Jackie, we're currently seeing the short-term effects of these extreme events and the impact that they have on society. But what about the longer term? Will this help to build resilience in a society that has to get used to these extreme events in the future? I think that's how we respond as a country and how we rally around those communities. So I think if you take your mind back to Christchurch and the many families and communities that survived the earthquakes there, we know that the long-term impact was heightened rates of anxiety in, in young people. But we also know that that is a city and a community that has amazing spirit and they support each other and they get through many difficult things. So that level or, or ability, I think, to overcome challenge and to support each other is quite outstanding in Canterbury. So I think really that's down to our response about how we care for our neighbours, how we look after ourselves, how we can really effectively work together to think clearly and, as you say, rationally about what is the situation around upcoming weather events. Are there areas of Auckland or Northland which actually are not that habitable? What are we going to do in those communities? How do we support those families to relocate if they need to? What do we need to do from an infrastructure perspective? You know, I think if we see action and responsiveness from council, from government, from community groups, we've got a good chance of people banding together and managing through. Jackie, when we look at those who are worst affected by the rainfall, so the people in the east coast, in Auckland's coastal areas, how do we prevent those dark clouds overhead from sparking this intense feeling of fear for them every time that happens? I think it's really important to remember that most people will get through. So even when you're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, people that have, have suffered and witnessed and experienced the most horrific things, many people come out the other side without post-traumatic stress. So it's really important for me to press that, for us to remember that. For the smaller group of people that are struggling, I think it's just important to acknowledge that. It is understandable if you have been through repeated crises or exposure to traumatic events that your body has put itself into a state of survival. And if we can look at that through a lens of compassion and understanding, you're far more likely to reach out and get help. You know, going to see your GP, being put in touch with a local psychologist or counsellor that can support you through it. You know, community groups that can band together and support each other in effective ways. And I think that's really important that we open the doors for that for those that need it, but that we don't scare people into thinking that that will be the outcome for everybody. Thanks for joining us, Jackie. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Sean D. Wilson with executive producer Ethan Sills. I'm Damien Venuto. You can follow The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.